So to get back to what we were doing, actually, uh, in our less entertaining picture of the uh, judgments of, uh, of Revelation, we're in this middle section on the visions of the conflict and the visions of inevitable outcome of that conflict. And we're particularly looking in chapter 14 at the outcome. And uh, we're doing chapter 14 as kind of a, a chiastic outline where we go through the thing and, and, and these, each of the A, B, C all relate to each other as you kind of go through here. And we'll talk a little bit more of that. We started that a little bit last week with the proclamations of the, of the angels in the center there and how the uh, proclamation of the third angel and the first have some parallel ideas associated with them. Um, so this is the way we're going to approach it. We talked about, we saw the image of the Lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000, that same group from chapter 7. Uh, we Song of the Redeemed that we saw there, the character of the redeemed, spent some time on that. Then you have these proclamations, and we'll come back to those before we're finished this morning because when we wrap up chapter 14, because in this sort of chiastic outline of things, it's those center elements that are being emphasized. We think beginning and end, usually in the way we do things, but they did a little different. So let's get into the first text for this morning, which is the patient endurance of the saints. Thank you for your patience on the poster there. Uh, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So the kind of word that focuses on there uh, is the word in, translated here, endurance. Um, it's it's uh, the Greek word, hupomene, which is an interesting word study, and you don't have to know Greek to do it necessarily. But it occurs often. It's translated usually endurance, patient endurance, steadfast endurance, perseverance, just plain patience. Uh, I personally like the idea of Patience-endurance. I think that gets the idea. Of the sort of the semantic definition of it is the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Uh, it occurs 12 times, a noun like we have here in, uh, um, I mean, 32 times in the New Testament. The verbal form 17 times. It, one of the reasons it's an interesting word study is because it's spread all throughout the New Testament. It's in all three Gospels the book of Acts. You can find it in the letters of Paul, James, Peter. You can find it in the book of Hebrews. And in case we didn't catch it going through it so far, we've seen it seven times now in Revelation. Seven times. Go figure. Anyway, that seven becomes important. The first time we saw it was back in chapter 1 where John introduced himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. We saw it four times in the letters to the seven churches, just three of the churches involved there, twice to Ephesus, where Jesus says to them, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And then he says a little bit later, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and, and, and you have not grown weary. The, uh, to Thyatira, he wrote, I know you, your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance. 
and that your latter works exceed the first. They were the only church that was growing, if you remember from going through those. And we see it in Philadelphia. You have kept my word about patient endurance. Now, particularly, I think this is important in our context of this conflict and the inevitable outcome in 12, chapters 12 through 14 of Revelation, because Hippomene was also the subject of a similar call to the saints back in chapter 13. In verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So we have kind of a paired up thing here, a repetition going on here within these three chapters. The verse describes the patient endurance in chapter 13 of those faithful believers who were facing some extreme circumstances, imprisonment and execution. The biblical literature, if you don't know this already, is full of uh, plays on words, repetition, uh, parallelisms, chiasms, rhythm, stock images, and metaphors. And John's hearers or readers of this book would not, those things would not be lost on them. They would have picked up these repetitions. They were used to listening better than we are. And so they would have probably noticed, if not the first time through Revelation, the second time that, hey, this is the seventh time we've heard of Pomene in this so far. They would also be alert to the corresponding pairs in a chiasm and would have looked for the relationship between those two pairs. In this case, they enlarged on a subject. And that subject we kind of got into last week, which was in verses 4 and 5, we talked about the characteristics, the traits of those redeemed from the earth. They steadfastly resist idolatry of any kind. They follow their Savior wherever he may lead. They consider their dearly purchased freedom because they're redeemed as basis for God's ownership of them. They are resolutely committed to the truth and unblemished by falsehood. Those are all really kind of statements, some of activity, but some of mostly of loyalty and commitment. And here in this paired portion here in 12 and 13, we have the added to that, that they are continuously keeping the commands of God and the faith in Jesus. And this is all done with an attitude of patient endurance. That was the emphasis, kind of capping this thing off. The combination of the terms commands or commandments and faith, when you see it in the New Testament, where those things kind of get put together, is really what should, that should hint to us or tell us is that what, what is being embraced in this idea or this statement is the whole doctrinal content of the Christian faith. Uh, it's very much along the lines that we, uh, that may, a verse that's familiar with a lot of people. Maybe you don't know where it is, maybe you've heard parts of it before, but in, in Jude's letter, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's a need historically for the church to always be concerned with and always be committed to maintaining that faith because the attacks just keep coming. They just keep coming. They never go away. Not this side of heaven. We often tend to think about commands 
of God as something for the Old Testament. <clears throat> but Jesus had a lot to say to his disciples about commands. Now, most people, uh, even many who are not Christians, are somewhat familiar with the words of Jesus in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And he goes on to say, by this all the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. We like that one. The uh, ones that are less known, maybe, or a little less popular, uh, kind of come in the next verse, the next chapter of John, where Jesus says, I give to you, uh, the, the new commandment I give to you, uh, let you read it. <laughs> Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, that kind of criteria, we don't see too much talking about. That's where we stop preaching and go to meddling. Anyway, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You notice there's kind of a binary thing going on there? Not a popular idea at all in our society. This is sort of John's counterpart to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on and says, On that day there will say, many will say, Lord, Lord, do not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now the implication of that is that anything that is not the will of the Father in heaven is lawlessness. And anything that is lawlessness is not the will of the Father in heaven. <clears throat> There's not a lot of wiggle room in this idea. But even signs and wonders and great miracle works or whatever can be deceptive because they can be done without doing the will of our Father in heaven. Those things can happen. The only other time commandment, the word commandment, or command is used in Revelation, was with exactly the same phrase back in chapter 12 of this three-chapter piece. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what I kind of gather from that is that the dragon here would not have to pay much attention or work very hard to deal with those Christians who did not keep the commandments of God. That's an easy victory for him. If a person is not living in a manner consistent with a biblical worldview, then you're living in a manner consistent with a non-biblical worldview. We aren't given a lot of flexibility on this. Again, not a very popular concept in our culture. They would be acting in conformity with the mark of the beast. Basically, the dragon already won in those cases. Now, the implications of John's visions are that patient endurance in the face of opposition, resolute commitment to the objective content of our faith will define who we are as followers of the Lamb. It's a big order, and we hear some more about it as we kind of continue in this. The words about patient endurance of the saints are concluded uh, 
with the second of seven benedictions or blessings that we'll see in Revelation. The first was in chapter 1 where it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This one we read, Blessed are the ones dying in the Lord from now on. Now, in the ESV, it, the next words are, uh, um, talk about, you know, blessed indeed. Literally, that's, that's uh, more of a literal rendering of it. It's the word yes, basically. Uh, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the ones dying in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, in order that they will be given rest from their labors for their deeds follow after them. <clears throat> now we have some more blessings coming. Keep your eyes open for them in Revelation. We'll see one in chapter 16. The one who stays awake, no sleeping during that sermon when Marty does it. Uh, in chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Chapter 20, blessed are those who share the first resurrection, not the second death. Chapter 22, we have two of them. One that will say, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy, kind of a bookend to the first one. But then also, blessed are those who wash their robes, which is the image we had uh, back in chapter 7 of the multitudes that were saved. <clears throat> also, back before in chapter 10, I made the case that whenever we read the phrase, a voice from heaven, or a voice from a cloud in the New Testament, that it's God the Father who is speaking. You can check that out if you want to. Um, in the context we have here, we have then those who are dying in the Lord, which would imply that dying while holding to the commandments of God and faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son, and the benediction originating with the Father, or God the Father, says, uh, you know, blessed are they, and it's confirmed by God the Holy Spirit. So you got this one. There's a whole bunch of these little subtle woven pictures of the Trinity all through Revelation. It's another thing that's interesting to look for. We should be, have our eyes open for them. <clears throat> the promise of the blessing is particularly for those who die in the Lord before the second advent of Christ. Uh, like the multitude in the white robes, they finish the race uh, in chapter 7 and come through their part of the great tribulation, which we've argued began with the resurrection and continues until Jesus returns. We're all in the middle of it. That's why it's great. It's lasted a long time. And we don't know how much longer it will last. <clears throat> the Spirit promises that patient endurance and faithful living in the face of tribulations will result in rest from our labors, and their deeds will follow them. Now, it's interesting, particularly in the more literal translation of this, it's not entirely clear whether that rest is only after death or not. Uh, I think there's kind of a double meaning here, which is another thing you see oftentimes in the Scripture. Uh, the implication that for our lives here on earth, the ability to stand fast in the Lord is not accomplished by our own strength. It's accomplished by the strength of the Holy Spirit. And we've got him coming into this really for one of the first times in Revelation. And there is no Christian life, I 
as far as I'm concerned, reading the scripture, apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, Paul wrote that uh, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what's going on here is that this rest can be now as well as then because it's through the Spirit that all this is happening. It's through the Spirit's strength. It's through the Spirit's indwelling. That's the only way we're going to be alert to the dangers of the world around us and be able then to overcome those temptations and conflicts and pressures that we ultimately will get if we're obeying, following the commands of, of God and keep our faith in Jesus. <clears throat> now the next two visions are further treatments of the first two visions in the chapter. So following that chiastic pattern, the vision of the harvest of this by the Son of Man, which we'll look at next, corresponds to the song of the redeemed. And the vision of the harvest by the angel from the temple in heaven, which will be the last one in the chapter, corresponds to the beginning of the chapter in the Lamb on Mount Zion. And so we'll kind of look at those with the idea, what do we learn then about each of those as we take that apart apart? But first let's look at the harvest by the Son of Man. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who said on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. <clears throat> We've already seen echoes of Daniel's prophecies in Revelation. Uh, this is another one from Daniel 7:13, where he saw a vision with the clouds of heaven, and there came one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that phrase, that title, was one that Jesus repeatedly claimed for himself. In fact, 81 times in the four Gospels, Jesus claims that vision for himself, or that name, that title. And particularly, we see in the Olivet Discourse, with his, which is Matthew 24 and 25, and in Mark's uh, Gospel, the, where it tells the story of his trial, we see two places where Jesus not only claimed that, but directly alluded to Daniel's vision in a context that people would have understood that he was speaking to. In Matthew 24, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. So you also have this in, in uh, chapter 24, verses 27, 37, 39, 44, and then one in chapter 25 as well. And then in Mark's gospel, at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is claiming all these things and predicting all these things for himself that Daniel also saw. In John's vision of the Son of Man, he's wearing a golden crown. Uh, in this case, the crown is uh, 
stephanos, that's the Greek word for crown that's used here. And it was associated with an earned victory or an earned honor of some kind. Uh, the contrast with that is the, is the crown that is usually, many trans, English translations just use a transliteration diadem, diadema in, in Greek. And we see that in chapter 19 when Jesus, because that usually refers to the highest authority in an area, whether it's earned or not. I mean, the dragon and the beast and all those crowns in, in chapter thir- 12 and 13 were diadems. They were making a claim to some power. But we see in chapter 19 that Jesus will have many diadems because he's the king of the universe. But here in chapter 14, the emphasis is on the victory he has won. And so that kind of takes us back to some of those things in the, in the beginning of the chapter as well. The one seated on the cloud was also holding a sharp sickle. Uh, I know most of us, if we've read through the Bible very many times, that, you know, we, okay, yeah, we, we've said that before. But if you heard this for the first time, I would think that it might be a somewhat unexpected thing to see. A golden crown and a sharp sickle. You think uh, maybe a, a scepter or a sword or something like that, but he's got a sickle. Next we see another angel came out of the temple with a message for the one who was seated on the, white, on the white cloud. Now, angels never originate messages or instructions. They always convey them. And so this angel is bringing from the one who dwells in the temple, God the Father, a message to the one who is sitting on the cloud, the Son of Man, God the Son. So I know pieces of the Trinity here. The message was sent to Jesus God the Son, who even after his resurrection continued to subordinate himself to the Father and told his disciples that the times or seasons of the restoration of the kingdom, the Father has fixed by his own authority. And before that, Jesus had told his disciples, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time has come. This kind of takes us back to when we were doing our introduction to, Re- to Revelation. Somehow the church hasn't listened very well to that particular statement about G- that Jesus made. They're always trying to come up with when this is going to happen. Set a date. Predict it. It's going to be in the next whatever. It's supposed to be the farthest thing from us, but often it isn't. But in John's vision, the time has come. We're going to see that time right here. And chapter 14 is put in terms of harvesting. Now, in this first vision, the Son of Man does the harvesting or reaping. Some English translations have. It's the same translation of the same Greek word. Uh, Meaning, and that means to cut grain and bundle it for storage. Carries that whole idea. So this is a grain harvest that's going on here. The most helpful image... I think our passage, rather, in in understanding the harvest in the New Testament is the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, which is all parables of the kingdom. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Of course, the grain began to grow, 
the weeds came up with the grain. And so the owner decides, no, we're not going to try to go out and pull all the weeds, destroy too much of the wheat. We're going to wait till the harvest time. And then he directed his workers to go out, bundle the weeds up, throw them in the fire, bundle the weed up, and store it in the barn. So Jesus interpreted this for his disciples when they were at, he was asked, you know, what does this one mean? And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pretty much goes right along with what we're reading here in Revelation. The other place in the New Testament where we have maybe some hints of this are in the words of John the Baptist. Uh, both Luke and Matthew record this as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ John answered them all saying I baptize you with water but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to unite, untie he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In both these passages, the wheat was preserved, but the weeds, described as all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, uh, were taken out of the kingdom and thrown into the fire. Now back to John's vision. The sickle was swung, finally, at the, at the, at the words from the message from the angel, or put in, literally, and the harvest of the earth was reaped. And this is where the chiastic parent, I think, uh, gives us some clarification. The Son of Man is harvesting the earth. So what is he harvesting? Well, if you go back to verse 4, the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth, and it tells us they were offered as the first fruits, the first part of the harvest to God and to the Lamb. So there you got kind of this connection between these two. There's some debate among commentators about this passage on the Son of Man, whether it's also a negative kind of judgment as the one after it is. And, and there's some good debates both ways, but I think this sort of ties it together in my mind anyway. And that brings us to the final, you know, chiastic pair where the vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion is paired with the harvest by the angel from the heavenly temple. So we're going to get into more of these images not suitable for all, all audiences. <clears throat> then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called it with a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle 
for 1600 stadia. I'm, sh I'm sure you can't find grape sickles out at Vintech or anything like that, but uh, apparently they did some harvesting with that that way back in the day. Um, the the harvest was performed, it says here, by the angel from the temple. But before that, we need to note that the victorious lamb and his followers were where? On Mount Zion, which is another term for the city of God. So we've got a contrast in this case. Now we have this judgment, this wine press is sitting where? Outside the city. And so I think that's where you get the tie-in between these two. Performed by the angel from the temple of heaven with a sharp sickle, not much like the one that the Son of Man had. Uh, as with the harvest carried out by the Son of Man, the previous in the previous vision, the harvest is initiated by a messenger, angelic messenger. But this one was specifically from the altar in the temple and was further described as the one who has authority over the fire and who may be the same angel, I think, that we saw earlier when the seventh seal was opened in chapter 8. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. So if this is the one in charge of the fire, could be the same guy. This is also, I think, interesting because this is another vindication then, this reference to the altar, of the picture that we have of the martyrs in chapter 6, where it says, When he opened this fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So we've seen multiple pictures of this vengeance, of this vindication, but uh, I think maybe we have another one of going here tied together with this image of the altar. Now the Old Testament background, the intertext for these, this, uh, these two harvests I think are really interesting, and there's a couple of them I want to share. The first one's from Joel. And uh, proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which means, by the way, Valley of Judgment. God will judge. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Lots of similar images here, and it's just a whole interesting picture of this, you know, God, Jehoshaphat, Yahweh, or God will judge in the valley by that name, 
and what's going on here. And I think there's a there's sort of a if you think of this one, you're going to keep that one in mind when we get to the next couple chapters because there's some images that are similar to that. The next one is actually from Isaiah. Uh, one thing I want to mention here first is another part of this whole idea of uh, wine and grapes and things like that. We also saw the 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 wine of God's wrath in verse 10, the proclamation of the angel. In John's vision, the, the blood that flowed from the wine press, it says, uh, was described as as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Uh, now, a stadion is 167 feet, so this is an area just shy of 184 miles in diameter. <laughs> so... Uh, pretty graphic picture, but I think more important or more interesting from the symbolism and the images and things in Revelation is the number 1600, which is a square of 40. And we talked about numbers and the importance of them in this. And if you go back into the Old Testament, the number of 40 was often associated with judgment and punishment. Uh, the earth was flooded for 40 days. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. If you go to the law, 40 lashes was set as a maximum physical punishment short of execution. So we see this society. I think that's more the idea we have here is a picture of, of what was considered a judgment. There's also some Old Testament background in another interesting passage in Isaiah. And this is a dialogue in the context. It's kind of hard when I take it out at verses like this, but... So here's, here's uh, Isaiah in his vision saying, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? And here's the answer from this victorious warrior that is being described. It is I, which is like I am. You know, it's, probably the same, it's the same Hebrew word. Uh, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So then Isaiah asked, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? And the answer is, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Another one of those pleasant pictures. This passage from Isaiah uh, may also have be reflected, you're going to see eventually in chapter 19, when we see the rider on the white horse comes wearing a robe dipped in blood and treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So a consistent symbolism here. So I want to close by looking at those central elements again. I think they're enough above me. You can see them here. These three proclamations form the center of this and probably the emphasis of this. Uh, the greater emphasis is really the middle one, which is uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon, but we really don't see a lot about that. It's pointing ahead to the, to the chapters that are coming. The first angel, the emphasis was an eternal gospel. 
which I believe pointed to both the message of salvation and the message of judgment that's in has always been part of the gospel message it's good news but it's not good news for everybody it's good news if you accept it the gospel is eternal in its grace for the redeemed it's also eternal in its punishment for those who refuse the second angel rather abruptly introduced Babylon into this whole drama we haven't seen anything about Babylon to this point but does so in the past tense declaring fallen fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon will figure in the final bold judgments in 15 and 16, will be the central topic of chapters 17 and 18. And while the beast of chapter 13 represented the tactic of physical coercion to attack the saints, we will learn that Babylon personified the tactic of seduction. Not quite so overt. But it's a proclamation of the third angel that I really want to talk a little bit more about. Uh, I want to go back and look at it again because I want to emphasize it in closing this. We have seen a number of visions of judgment so far in Revelation. Uh, A lot of those have involved big pictures, big seismic and atmospheric events that take place, pestilence that affects everything, people, and the earth. great numbers of people, portions of the earth. The judgments have been targeted at the groups that are consistently called every tribe and people and language and nation or the dwellers on the earth. But in the proclamation of the third angel, all the pronouns and verbs are singular. They aren't plural. It's talking about individuals in that proclamation. It includes, in fact, a, a, ver- a verb or pronoun in, in Greek that is a, an emphatic one that sets it apart and usually translated he himself or something like that. Uh, while this individual focus was common in the message of the seven churches, it did not show up again in Revelation until chapter 13, verse 10, which we already looked at this morning, that if anyone, singular, is taken captive, and cap- to captivity he goes, both singular verbs, If anyone, singular, is slain with a sword, another singular verb, with a sword, he, there's that emphatic, he himself, must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. The third angelic message warned that any individual that worships a beast or receives his mark will drink the wine of God's wrath and will be tormented forever with no hope of rest or relief. That is a very personalized and very disturbing image because it's not a big group it's an individual New Testament scholar Robert Mulholland cautions that we cannot treat the wrath of God as if it was human wrath made bigger that's not the way it operates he notes that human wrath is mean vindictive punitive retributive all those negative things now wrath interestingly enough could be considered along with love, patience, jealousy, kindness, righteousness, wisdom, things that if you talk about the theology of God, they're called communicable attributes of God because we share them. We can know a little about all those things in a much less way, but we can share some of these, we understand them. But we must be careful not to avoid the error of limiting God's expressions of these things to how we express them. That's to get the whole picture wrong. We must be careful to avoid that error. We must uh, 
realize that, the, that what we experience is just a poor analog to the character of God and those things that we get from being in the image of God. It's hard for us to be both angry and kind in the same moment. Uh, we experience emotion or thoughts at one time because we live within time. We have to make ourselves shift from one mental or emotional state to another. But God does not. God exists outside of time, which is itself his creation. He does not have to shift from love to justice. He does not have to shift from mercy to wrath because he is fully everything all at once and completely so. And that's something we can never understand. And so when we try to talk, when we think about the wrath of God, we think about some of these graphic pictures, we need to keep that in mind. I think that should be a lesson for us, at least a lesson for me. The most important lesson that we can learn from Revelation is our place as creatures. We are the creation, we're not the creator. True, we're creatures created in God's image, so we can even share and know something, a little bit about some of his attributes because of that. But we're also creatures who are fallen. We're creatures who effortlessly embrace the idolatry of self-autonomy. We're consistently worshiping and serving the creature, not the creator. We don't deserve anything but the perfect wrath and the perfect justice of God. But by God's perfect grace, we're not stuck in the bondage of disobedience. God has provided us a way of redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what the good news is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be part, through the work of your son Jesus, of a great multitude crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We thank you we can be part of those who are singing a new song of the 144,000 redeemed of the earth who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I pray, Father, that you'll keep these things before us, you'll keep our proper place before us, Help us realize we're, we were redeemed with a price and that we owe everything that we are to the Lamb, to our Lord Jesus.